Look at him. He's building another nest. All these people putting bars on their windows, spending good money on high-tech security systems, trying to feel safe. I look at this guy and I think, it ain't enough. to Discovering the X-Files, the podcast in which a newbie, that's me, takes a deep dive into the entirety of Chris Carter's creepy universe, as longtime fans escort me on the journey, a journey filled with paranoid conspiracies and monsters of the week. I'm Eric Santuan, and today Daniel and I will be discussing the episode Squeeze, which originally aired in the U.S. on September 24th, 1993. It was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong and directed by Harry Longstreet with uncredited finishing work by Michael Cattleman. In this episode, Mulder and Scully investigate a series of mysterious and brutal killings by somebody capable of squeezing his body through the narrowest of spaces and who has already been operating for almost a century undeterred. Doug Hutchison guest stars as the episode's villain, Eugene Victor Toombs. After the break, Daniel and I are going to get into it, so stick around. Is your full name Eugene Victor Toombs? Yes. Have you ever killed a living creature? Yes. Have you ever killed a human being? Are you over 100 years old? That must be a control question. I had her ask it. No. Are you afraid you might fail this test? Well. Yes. Because I didn't do anything. Squeeze! The third episode. This is, um... So this is, I guess, you know, we're, we're going through it, so we, we already saw two mythology episodes and now here they throw in a the first monster of the week episode uh so to speak which essentially is setting up i mean most episodes of the season are going to follow this formula as opposed to mythology episodes right so this this really is kind of setting the template of what the show is or at least it gives you a, a clear idea of what the show in general is and they they pick kind of a creepy episode to sort of start with. I, I really liked it. I, I, I was um, really sucked in. I thought it had a really cool vibe to it. It's like a, it has that like serial killer thriller kind of vibe to it. And, yeah. you know, like it predates seven by a couple of years and it kind of predates the whole serial killer thriller craze that would dominate a lot of the nineties, you know, like at least the first half of the nineties by a couple of years. And Maybe it even had a little bit of an influence on it. It's, it's written by James Morgan uh, and Glenn, Glenn Morgan and James Wong, right? They wrote it. And they would go on to write many episodes of The X-Files, I believe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, like, they became a big creative force. Before going on to, like, 
basically create the final destination series, right? Which is yeah, a totally different thing right there. But they they came from there, and you definitely this was written by horror writers. You know, it's it has a a really cool horror vibe to it, and a couple of uh, interesting guest stars. I I enjoyed where right off the bat you see a very early role for Donald Logue. You know. <laughs> Slightly disconcerting because he, he didn't, you know, I'm, I'm so used to seeing him as kind of a disheveled fuck up and yeah. like most most every other thing, whether it's the dramatic things that he would do later, like character parts in like thriller movies or that sitcom he had what was grounded for life. Yep. You know, yep. whatever it is, you, you kind of it was it's a little bit weird to see him as sort of this button down, like straight arrow, like square FBI dude, slick back hair, the whole thing. And I'm just going, ah, it's not a low, you know, sort of like just being really kind of by the book, you know, playing a by the book jerk off. And just like, I just think that that's really interesting, but it's an interesting that you have that guy. Then you've got, of course, Doug Hutchison, who would also make a career out of playing very unsettling creeps, which I imagine, <laughs> Because he wasn't like famous when he got this, right? I mean, he was just not you know, that I'm aware of. I mean, he hadn't done anything before this. This is like his first big thing, and from this, this landed him in the part. You know, basically either pervy like bad guys or serial killers or like whatever. Like this was the guy was set. This was this was it for him. Like he was going to be the creepy dude in in movies. I guess his two biggest credits after this, unless I'm I've missed something, are uh, the Green Mile, where he plays the super sadistic guard, and then um, Punisher Warzone, where he's Looney Ben Jim, the uh, main villain's uh, psychotic brother. That's right. Yes, yes, and you know, a creepy, a very creepy character. This is a very, very interesting episode. The, the way that the story is told, it presents a very out there concept in a very straightforward way because you know immediately that something's up and it does it in a kind of very creepy way essentially what we're looking at here is a guy who can stretch his body in an unimaginable way and you kind of get that as, as soon as they present that concept to you you buy it that's the thing i mean it should be completely absurd <laughs> and it's it's uh, presented in such a straightforward, almost matter-of-fact way. Like, yeah, this is that's that's what it is. You're looking at a you know, you're looking at a at a killer who hibernates, you know, every thirty years or yeah. By the way, he can do this, and they give you no explanation for it. You know, they, they don't. He's just that's what he is. That's who he is. That's it. The closest explanation we get is at one point, I can't remember if it's Mulder or Scully, but of course they're talking about the fact that he rips out people's livers and devours them, and someone makes the comment that livers have regenerative properties, and that's as far as they take it. <laughs> yeah, they, they go like, okay, so clearly he, he needs to feed off the livers of people, and then and then you go, so that's that's all he does. Like essentially he come he hibernates for 30 years and he comes out of hibernation, goes on a killing spree for you know however long it is, a couple of weeks, however long it takes, kills five people, 
takes five livers, goes back into hibernation. It's like, that's all he does. That's his life. That's it. It's interesting. Like, that's it. That's all he does. He's essentially like an animal. He's an animalistic predator. That's just a very odd concept. It makes you wonder how many actual days of his life that he's lived throughout the centuries. Well, exactly. Because, I mean, you figure, you know, right, guys in his late 20s, early 30s, however, however old Doug Hutchison was in terms of, like, physical age, right, uh, in terms of, like, you know, how he appears. But, you know, we know that he's at least 100 years old, if not more, because of the, you know, the length of time that he's been doing this. Already, we're talking about roughly a 90-year period or so. Because yeah. they, they talk about a killing spree in the 30s, another one in the 60s, and now this one in the 90s. So he's been operating for 90 years, and let's say he's about 30. So yeah, the guy's about 120 years old at this point. But when I say about no explanation, like you, we essentially are meant to take it at face value that he's basically just, a, he's a mutant. He's a mutation. He's not, there's no explanation for how he became that way or what, you know, where he came from. They don't bother with that. And I think they don't have to. That's kind of my, that, that's what I'm getting at here. I think that the great value is that it's ultimately just a creepy story. It's a creepy horror story. And they don't have to. And I, and I get the sense that if this were something more recent or a more traditional, let's say, a more traditional sci-fi series or whatever, I think that we would have the entire backstory of uh, Tombs. We would find out where he came from. There, there would be uh, maybe a, I don't know, a, a seven-episode arc devoted to this. And by the end of that, we'd know everything. We'd know where he came from. We'd know who his parents were. We'd know it, they would try to explain it in some way that is convincing, like maybe it's some kind of a scientific experiment that went wrong. Because yeah. he's essentially he's essentially Mr. Fantastic. I mean that that's much. <laughs> I mean that's that's essentially what it is. You know, it, he's a horrific version of Mr. Fantastic. So you know, you go like, okay, well that's that's you know that's what it is, and that minimalism also like the the way they depict him when you see the stuff like it's very once again you have a situation where they use very simple, I guess camera effects optical effects, camera tricks to sort of pull off the, the effect, you know, of, of, of his arm stretching or whatever it is. You see it in a, in a way that is very, very clear, very kind of shocking, you know, you get that cool image of him stretching his hand out and that's it. I mean, you, you sort of, you get it and it's all you need. It's only, it's a brief thing. It's they're, they're using that storytelling technique, throwback to the great horror films where less is more, you know, like just suggest stuff, show little things so that it can be, it'll have greater impact if you do it that way. And I appreciate that about this episode, about the, the way they do the story. Oh, so do I. And e even just from the story standpoint, they get away with him being a random mutation, a genetic aberration, a freak of nature off on his own. Um, they get away with that because he's the only one. If you all of a sudden try to say he's always from sort of some sort of weird lost human subspecies that existed forever ago, or if he's a government experiment gone wrong, or some sort of human-alien hybrid, then immediately you're asking a thousand more questions that need to be at least partially answered, and it just way overcomplicates it. 
and like you said, then a one episode story ends up becoming a six or seven episode story and it just overtakes the entire narrative where they can just plug this in here, some weird little serial killer story and then move on and it's fine. Um, I read a description a while back that someone, I don't know if they had written it about the pilot at the time or if it was the first season in general, but they described the show as Close Encounters of the Third Kind meets Silence of the Lambs. And that really hits home on this one because you really have that serial killer Thomas Harris procedural aspect to it in play here, just with a supernatural bent to it. Yeah, and apparently uh, Doug Hutchison was... You know, he he modeled his performance a bit on Anthony Hopkins, on the stillness of Anthony Hopkins as Lecter. Yeah, you see that. I mean, the it's it's I very know. minimal. He's basically got. He doesn't have too many lines. No. He barely he barely talks. So it really is all just about presence and that really creepy stare that he's got. You know, <laughs> the, just like the, you know, that kind of thing. That look on his face and just this monotone sort of just the way he delivers his when he's taking the polygraph and like that seems really creepy and he's just going like no yes whatever and it just kind of works you know like it has this it's minimal it's all just it's all done in very economical terms and it it works in the episode's favor and it's the sort of thing that yeah it's like we're, like we we're saying i really think that today this would not they wouldn't do that. They would they would over-explain it or they would try to build up something more around it. It's almost like a modern audience might even be unsatisfied if it's just this kind of throwaway thing mm -hmm. that they don't solve. And right, right down to having that little creepy slasher movie ending because, like, you know, it has that thing. He's sitting in the cell and sort of looking at the, at the little mailbox thing there and just sort of... <laughs> And you know, you know, you you it's enough. It just suggests it's like, yep, that's the one thing they didn't consider that that's big enough for him to fit through. It tells you all you need. It's got it's even got this creepy, like almost sounds like the music from Halloween, that little thing that you hear at the end before like, oh, it fades yeah. to like it fades to black. And yeah. he I think he cracks a, a tiny little smile before it before it cuts back to black. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so and, and so that's what I mean. It's it's this self-contained it's this 45-minute little horror movie that's perfectly self-contained that you could just throw on and let's like even if you're not a fan of the show or whatever, you just happen to catch this one night. This by itself will be creepy. It'll grab you. It, it's it's just really well done. It's a really well done, solid hour of television that I was very impressed by, and I I, I really dig the Coveneys. Uh, performance. I'm really starting to pay more attention to, to the way he acts. And I like his take on Mulder. It's this very laid back approach. You know, it, again, it, it's this very restrained approach to the performance. And I was reading about it and apparently they ended up like this episode, a lot of it was apparently fixed in post because they had problems with the first director. And they like replay. Yeah, like I was reading about like that there was there were problems with whoever you know with the first director. They they ended up replacing the direct, firing the director, getting somebody else to finish the episode. And a lot of people had problems with the director and the sorts of suggestions he would give. And like for example, he like he wanted Mulder to to act really like shocked and aghast and like horrified. <laughs> 
you know, horrified by the, by the, um, you know, by this horrible serial killer. And the company was more like, no, no, that doesn't, you know, this is an amazing discovery. And also his take on it is like, yes, he's a killer, but he's doing it out of perseverance. He, he's not, it's not like, you know, he's doing it for his own survival. There's this like aspect to it that is kind of fascinating that, and that's his take on it. It's not, he, there's not, he doesn't look at it from a moral perspective. He looks at it from a, from the scientific discovery aspect of it. And I think, I mean, that what, what that leads me to believe is that obviously this was probably shot early in the production schedule where the characters were still being developed. So I don't know how complex the series Bible was. I don't know how much the actors brought to the characters, but clearly like based on that, based on, on how the company just shot down the director telling him, no, you've got to be more, more horrified or more like, basically like he wanted him to be angry, right? He wanted him to be angered by it, you know, angered by the, from, from a moral perspective, he wanted him to be like, oh, this, this, what a horrible person who's making, who's committing these murders. And, and the company's approach was more like, you know, he basically said, no, this is an amazing discovery. He's not morally culpable because he's genetically driven. I judge no one. Basically, you know, the company's approach was more like, no, for me, I'm more fascinated by what this is and the implications of what it means than, you know, the moral part of it. Because I, I guess it's like, yeah, of course, killing is wrong. But, you know, think about it. You have this this person who is a genetic mutation who you know, who has been living for over a century now and hibernates every 30 years. I mean, it is something that for him, for, from his perspective, it's something that should be studied. It's something that should be like observed. And, and I think that that's essentially, that sums up Mulder. It does. That, that what he read could have just been a Mulder quote. It would have fit right in with the episode and it would have been fine. <laughs> right. I mean, like that, like, it's it essentially his approach to all of this is one of curiosity. That that's that that's what I'm getting at here. Then I think that that's cuts to the heart of what makes the character an interesting hero for a sci-fi show. Is that he's all about the curiosity. He's all about the investigation. You know, it's not that he's a man of action. He's not a guy running you know running around with his gun, hunting down bad guys or monsters or you know like even. Like the inspiration for this show, one of the big ones is Kolchak the Night Stalker, right? Which essentially right. is a guy that is a, a monster hunter, you know? But that's not the Coveney's approach. He's not about the, you know, he's more about, he's in the eternal search of fascinating scientific discoveries. He, he looks at, the, um, at all the different fingerprints and all the different crime scenes, and he's fascinated by them. He's not disgusted by it. He's not repulsed by it. He's not angry that there's this killer who's been getting away scot-free for almost a century. It's he's more like, wow, this is I can't believe this exists, and I want to know more about it. You know, that's that's really what it's all about. I think we get a lot of insight into Mulder's personality in this episode, not so much his backstory, which we already got, you know, in the last two episodes to a degree. But there's there's three key moments that pop into my mind when I think about this one in terms of Mulder. One is when Scully meets him at the library, he's going through the microfiche and he asks her if she bought any Dramamine because it makes him motion sick, which is funny <laughs> quote in general, but clearly he does it so much 
that he'll literally make himself sick looking at decades-old articles in the library for fun. The second one, and I guess it ties a little bit into the disgusted vibe that the initial director wanted, was um, when he gets the bile on his fingers, and he has that quote. Let's see what it was. Is there any way I can get it off my fingers without quickly betraying my cool exterior? Yeah, that's, that's a great scene. The final one for me is right after he's done clowning Donald Logue with his reticulum galaxy alien spiel, and he leaves, and then, of course, it's after he's partially uh, described his theory to them, and Scully says, you knew they wouldn't believe you, why did you push it? And then his response is, maybe I thought you caught the right guy, and maybe I run into so many people who are hostile just because they can't open their minds to the possibilities that sometimes the need to mess with their heads outweighs the millstone of humiliation. I absolutely love that moment. <laughs> he has dignity, but not enough that he won't just absolutely mess with someone to make himself look stupid in the process just for his own amusement. You know, so we, we have had the way the company is, is developed, like the way Mulder's character is developing. We're three episodes in, but, you know, we're, we're seeing these very... Uh, strong aspects of his character, as you pointed out. And then, of course, you have Scully, who is still the skeptic. She's not buying into the whole, this is a guy who somehow exists. She's looking at it from, well, I mean, I guess maybe that was his grandfather or like whatever, you know, she, she's looking for logical, reasonable explanations to what that could be. Right down to the whole, come on, the same fingerprint. It's like, well, you know, genetically, there can be similarities. And here's the thing. So she's, she's still the skeptic, but then in the climax of this episode, which is a, a brilliantly suspenseful sequence, I mean, it, it's testament to how well-crafted it is that you know she's not going to die. She's, you know, the star of the show. Yeah. But, but there's still, you know, there's, there's suspense. It's a really creepy scene. You know, she's alone. Uh, she's drawing a bath. You know, it's... it's, it's uh, She's going to be in an extremely vulnerable position. So it's like a good, scary horror film scene. And so she sees this guy crawl out of the tiny vent. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just like attack her. And I'm going like, I think once that happens, I'll bet, you know, you're like, okay, well, clearly, I mean, clearly this is not a normal person. Clearly this is not a, a normal human being. There, there must be something to this mutation theory. But, you know, uh, we don't really get to see her reaction to that. But, uh, but it's, a very good, uh, it's a very good suspense sequence, the climax of the episode. It is. And her arc continues in this one. It's, it's a little more haphazard, not in a bad way, just in terms of the, the past two episodes. You know, the first one, she's wanting to prove to Mulder that even though her superiors might be sending her there for shady reasons... She still wants to do the job. She still wants him to take her seriously. She still wants to perform her position with, you know, some form of pride and dignity. Then in the second episode, she's a little bit more combative with him, but still goes along with it. And when push comes to shove, stands up for him. And then she does so again here, where not not as much early on, but she's pretty much defending Mulder against their fellow FBI agents who think he's a joke throughout the entire episode, um, especially towards the end where she's just had enough of Donald Logue's crap. 
And then I think the other interesting thing is on top of that, you have Mulder giving her the out at one point saying, you know, if you want to transfer out, I won't think any less of you. You can go. It's fine. But then she doubles down and stays with him. Right. Uh, essentially, she 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 takes sides here, right? Yes. And, and she ultimately, she decides to stick with Mulder. I mean, I, I guess the implication is that there's an aspect to this, to the X-Files, that although she is the skeptic and she's been sent there to sort of disprove all of that, right? But there's an aspect to it that I think uh, she's drawn to. I think she's she's as fascinated in her own way as Mulder is, but the thing is that since she has to be the skeptic, it's almost like she forces herself at every turn to be the skeptic. But she's still drawn in. She's still attracted to this. There's something about it that is compelling her to stay. I mean, they don't play it from a romantic perspective either, which I appreciate. It's not, it's not oh, she's falling in love with Mulder. No, it's not, it's not what it is. It's, it's she's genuinely drawn to it, you know, from much like Mulder, who's driven by curiosity, she's also compelled to stick there. There's something about it that's fascinating, even though she's a skeptic and she's supposed to be disproving all this, she's drawn to it. She's, she's curious, uh, she's interested, and then on the Mulder front, it's purely platonic, and she just respects him. She respects his passion and his outside-the-box thinking and his dedication to the truth, no matter however weird it might be. Yeah, I mean, I, I do know that eventually there is... I mean, the show's old enough that we, we know about this, but I know that eventually they do start to play up more of the romantic tension between them because it's just the way things develop. But uh, I do appreciate that you don't have any of that right now. Yeah. And, and I think that I can only imagine that they were eventually forced to sort of play that up a little bit more because it's, you know, that's what mainstream TV expects of you. But, but I do like that they were sort of keeping away from that in these early episodes. They're, they weren't making that the focus, not from her point of view or from his point of view. There's no, it's like you said, it's all platonic. It's all about the work. It's all about the, they work well together. They have good chemistry as colleagues, as in, you know, in their investigations and they respect each other. They like each other, but they like each other as colleagues. And I like that. I think that that's, that's very good. I almost, you know, I'm almost dreading when things start going in a more, you know, traditionally romantic direction, as I'm sure they will. But, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that that's not there yet. I like that about this. So do I. It, it's refreshing. And without giving too much away, it's going to be a while before we get there. Yeah, they don't just all of a sudden drop it out of the blue, which a lot of modern shows might do, if not right out the gate. But yeah, they, they really take their time with that, if memory serves. Yeah, because it's basically, it's it's everywhere. It's like in all of the shows that I can think of, shows that I like, They all there's always this, you know, like... There's always the romantic thing, whether it's Alias or Fringe or like any of them, they always have that angle. And it's it's boring, frankly. Like, you know, eventually it's like, come on, like, does it always have to come down to that? You know, can, can't two people just work together? And, you know, I, that, that's, that is one thing I appreciate. Now, I mean, I, yeah, I know that it's something that they kind of stretched 
um, to a certain degree. I mean, who knows when it finally comes in, I guess a few seasons down the line. But the fact that it wasn't there from the beginning kind of shows that they were about something else, the way they were crafting this show. The Chris Carter and the writers, they were really looking at it from a different perspective. And it seems to me that eventually other people started sticking their hands in there and playing around with the idea, throwing ideas in there. Yeah, the, the problem with relationships like that in shows in general, especially genre shows, is that they dive in on the will-they-won't-they they stuff so fast that they have to stretch it out so long that effectively they make each character an asshole because one of them is always doing something mean to the other one, be it intentional or unintentional, so they can draw the drama out. And eventually the relationship drama subplot always ends up overwhelming the A narrative, which is, you know, that's, that's why you have people complaining about those aspects of the CW superhero shows or pretty much any series that runs 20-some episodes at this point. A lot of, lot of relationship wheel spinning that really doesn't need to be there. And the thing also is that you end up sabotaging the show in a way because you create this tension that, okay, granted, it, it allows you to put some interesting conflict in there some interesting tension between the characters that can exist and that can be good for some of the stories that you want to tell. But then at some point you're going to have to resolve it. Yeah. And then when you resolve it, invariably, that's it. I mean, you've, you've screwed that. And if you, because that tension is gone. So it's sort of like any of those. And right now I can only think of sitcoms, but it's like, for example, I don't know, like in Frasier, you know, when, when Niles finally hooked up with Daphne, kind of deflated things there. You know, or when in Friends, whoever hooked up with whoever, you know, like whenever they did that, whenever they resolved it or in Cheers, you know, when Sam and Diane did hook up or, I mean, Shelley Long had to leave the show so that, so that they could come up with something fresh for the show. I mean, it's, it's, it's ultimately this thing where you, you create this tension that allows you for, uh, for some interesting storytelling or interesting character growth. At some point you have to resolve it. And then what do you do? And if your entire thing is built around that, then the, your only other option is to just, like you said, stretch it and stretch it and stretch it to a point where it's like, oh, come on, man. Like, like how, how long is this gonna go on for? But in any case, what you see here is that they didn't need to do it, certainly. And uh, they, they, they were perfectly capable of creating these characters who could work together and as you were saying, like for the first episode, they ended up cutting scenes, something where it was going to be revealed that uh, Scully did have a, a boyfriend or something, but they cut those scenes or they didn't film them or whatever it is. Yeah, they were cut. Nothing, nothing on Mulder's uh, end. He, <laughs> seemed, he, he, he really seems to be married to his job, as they say. It's, uh, he, at this point, he's almost an asexual character. It's another refreshing aspect. He really does seem to be an asexual character at this point, which is interesting for a for a masculine TV hero. I like that's another aspect that I think is intriguing, considering that uh, the company's next gig, that was a big TV gig <laughs> after this, had him playing a sex addict, right? It's Californication. Okay. So for the fact that he started out as this very asexual character, that uh, you know, I just I, I think that that's intriguing. Maybe they got notes. Maybe that was the thing. Maybe eventually it's like, okay, well, you know, what is this dude? You know, <laughs> what's what's his deal? Yeah, I know, I know with those boyfriend scenes in the pilot, they apparently shot them. 
Chris Carter shot them only because the the uh, the network wanted those scenes. After he shot them, he talked them out of using them because I, I guess in the network's mind they could play up Scully's love life throughout the season just on a side. Like, all right, you won't let us put Mulder and Scully together, but can you guys at least put in you know some different boyfriends for Scully throughout? And they just kind of killed that. I can't remember off the top of my head if she has any dating scenes later on in the next season or so. It's possible that she does, but I don't really remember it being a recurring element. As far as Mulder's love life goes, without ruining anything, he's not entirely asexual, but he is very much married to his job. There'll be some little fun things peppered throughout as we go on that'll refer to, uh, I guess, how he gets his uh, kicks on that front. I can only imagine. We're only three episodes in, you know? But that's the thing. It's like, it's not something... It's not important. As you said, this is all very platonic. And the characters are not... They're just not sexualized in any particular way. And I and I think that's also a refreshing aspect. That's just not focused on, you know? That's just not really focused on to any particular degree. And I really like that. That's one of the things that I'm really enjoying, like, from the way that these characters are developing... Uh, the fact that that aspect is just not touched on. It's just not discussed, and it doesn't matter, and it, and it shouldn't matter, and that's what I think is really cool. The episode, again, the same uh, high-quality, uh, you know, obviously prestige television thing. They're still giving it a really cool look. It's cinematic. It's well-written. It's, it's well-acted. You know, you have standout characters and really memorable scenes, you know, that, that, that sequence in which Toombs goes in through the chimney. Yeah. Into this guy's house, uh, whoever that guy is, it's this guy, this uh, unnamed character who I looked at him, I was like, whoever that, that's a very Kubrickian character. He, he, he looked like a character out of a Kubrick film. He looked like he could be one of the ghosts in The Shining or something. The guy's like sitting by, like standing by his fireplace and the Toombs come in and kills him. They really pick these interesting characters. Um, I also really like the guy when they, they go interview this retired cop. Yes. Right? yes. Uh, that guy's got one scene, and he does a terrific job. He just very evocative, that monologue, essentially, that he like just goes through his history with this case, and he's just he makes a really memorable impression. One thing that I really liked about that was, of course, you, you get the scene where they interview him, and then you get the little tag with him at the end. And, you know, it's a Monster of the Week case. It's really not going to have any bearing on the mythology or the ongoing series, as it were. For Mulder, Mulder and Scully, it's interesting, but at the end of the day, it's just another case. But by putting that retired cop character in there, who had been haunted you know, by the past murders and the fact that he knew that the guy was still out there his entire life, and then he finally gets the closure of seeing him in the newspaper as being arrested, that manages to add some weight to the fact that, you know, this is just a, a standalone side episode, but it still has an impact because we get to see how it affects him. It might not mean as much to Mulder and Scully, but it definitely means something to that guy. And I thought that was really interesting. It was a really nice way to put a button on everything at the end. Right. Well, it's, it speaks to what I was saying for the first two episodes, how they essentially, there are these cases that are essentially unresolved. Uh, that's different here. I mean, here, that's not really the case. You know, uh, yeah, we don't find out anything about his history. 
but the, the case is resolved. We do find out who is responsible for these murders. So that, that case is closed. And yes, I think that for what you said, it's, it's put there so that you can see that there is a level of, of resolution that is important. And because the guy makes such a good impression, uh, yeah, you're right. That little tag at the end is very much very satisfying. And it's interesting where, you know, like in, in the interviews for, uh, for Halloween, you know, the behind the scenes interviews for Halloween, like John Carpenter always brings up this one little anecdote of how when he was working with Donald Pleasance and they were shooting the ending of, of, um, of Halloween, you know, so he, he shoots Michael Myers and Michael Myers goes out the window and, you know, falls to the ground. And then, you know, you've got the shot of him going up to the window and looking down and seeing that Michael Myers isn't there, right? And, and how Donald Pleasance had said, well, I could play this two ways. I could be like, oh my God, he's gone. Or like, I knew this would, I knew that he would be gone. And ultimately that, that the key thing is that, you know, Donald Pleasance, the, the, the fact that I knew he would be gone is obviously the more impactful, you know, more ominous way to do it. And that's what's in the movie. And so it's kind of the same thing here, because like you have this cop who didn't, you know, he wasn't plugged into the whole X-Files thing, but he obviously this was a very important case for him. He knew there was something strange about it. And he shows them pictures of tombs from the 60s. Yeah. And Mulder, and he's like, and as he's showing them those pictures in his mind, he's assuming that tombs is obviously 30 years older today because he says to them, he goes like, well, of course, this is what he looked like 30 years ago. I mean, who knows what he looks like now kind of thing, right? Mulder and Scully are looking at a picture of a guy they just saw <laughs> yesterday you know, in, in, in the interrogation room. But the, the thing is that like, and then at the end, you know, he's looking at the newspaper article and it's got a picture of him right there. Yep. And so clearly he hasn't aged a day since like 1963. And... You don't see this look on the cop's face that's like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe it. No, he's just kind of just looking at it like, huh, okay, you know. He's just sort of like, well, they caught him, that's good. It's not, you know, it, there's no shock. It's almost like, of course, of course he has an age today. I mean, of course, you know, like it, it's just this, it makes perfect sense to him. And that's a, that's a really cool aspect to that, to that button at the end. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention that's tangential on the side before I forget, because you brought it up. Of course, James Wong and Glenn Morgan worked on the X-Files for years um, and ended up working on the spinoff series Millennium as well. But you mentioned that they uh, you know, helped create the Final Destination franchise. And what's funny about that, before I forget, in case it never comes up again on this, um, the original pitch for Final Destination began as a a spec X-Files script that the writer submitted, you know, without being prompted. Obviously they didn't end up using it, but it got, and it got refashioned into a feature, but there's actually a solid connection there beyond just Wong and Morgan from the X-Files to Final Destination. And I think the screenwriter, um, Jeffrey Reddick might actually have that X-Files spec script version of Final Destination online somewhere. If anyone's interested in looking that up and giving it a read. Well, yeah, I'd certainly want to read that because I, I would wonder how, what the X-Files version of that would have been. I mean, I'm guessing it would have been about a psychic or something, about a guy, about a person who has a premonition. And uh, I, I just don't know, because like, 
I mean, yeah, it would be it would be interesting to read that because I, I'm just wondering what you know what that was like, what that would have looked like. Yeah, because uh, you know it's always as we said, it's monster of the week or it's mythology episodes or whatever. But there is a metaphysical aspect to the Final Destination films that I just I don't know. Like I, I I'm trying to see what that would have meant. Maybe they would have had it. Maybe it'd be something like the guy. Um, like he somehow creates the deaths or something like that. Like like he's a kind of Grim Reaper character yeah. or something. You know, it, it would have to be something like that. Um, no, but that's that, that's a cool detail. I didn't I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that Final Station had started out that way. They didn't write Final Destination. Right. They, right. they, they, they directed the episode. Yeah. They didn't direct this episode, but I, I assume they eventually did ep- did direct episodes of the X Files. Yes. And as then, a team. Um. I don't know if they directed in tandem or if they'd write it together and one one would direct one and one would direct the other. I don't quite remember on that front, but they are definitely a major creative force for at least the uh, first half of the series. And so is um, Glenn Morgan. I think he's Glenn Morgan's brother. Uh, Darren Morgan is also very much involved at, as we get further in. Okay. Well, that's something to, to keep an eye out for. All right, so is there anything else that we haven't uh, brought up about this episode that you'd like to <clears throat> point out? The only other funny bit is early on when Mulder's explaining the case to her and Scully makes a crack about how are the aliens involved this time, and he's like, that, that's ridiculous. There's there's no signs whatsoever that aliens might be involved in this case. <laughs> right, he, he just says it, so ma- he says it so matter-of-factly. It's just like, what aliens? No, come on, that's uh, that's absurd. It's not aliens. It's a mutant. It's a it's it's a it's a hundred year old mutant who somehow <laughs> has ten inch fingers and like no nah, aliens. That's ridiculous. It's funny. Like I, I think that that's the thing about their chemistry. It's very natural. Yeah, I, I really see that. I love how understated it all is. You know, it's never they they don't go for big moments. There's no oh my god, what is this? What have we here? You know, there's none of that. There's never anything like that. It's the way everything is played out is always very understated. Even when they discover something amazing, there is always this understatement to to how they're approaching it. And I really like that. I, I think that if they went for big moments, if they if they went for the big wow factor of it all, if everybody if everybody was like, oh my god, can you believe this? If they did that, it would completely ruin the. Um, it, it would it would break the reality of the show. I, th- I think one of the reasons why it's so convincing is that they underplay it. I think that that's the key, so far at least. Yeah, if everyone was overacting, it would devolve into par- self-parody really quickly. Um, and, of course, it also helps that, you know, with everyone playing it understated, it makes the, the workplace relationship feel more real because, you know, Whatever job you're doing, if you have a coworker, you're not always making huge proclamations and waving your arms in the air every time something right. weird and strange happens. It's you just, just another day at the office. Yeah, and by grounding the, the workplace vibe of it, it grounds the series in general. It makes the unbelievable stuff at least a little bit more believable, or at least within the context of the show. It just It just holds everything together, and if you were to break that, the whole thing would fall apart. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm doing this. You know, so far it's three for three. These are three really interesting hours of uh, sci-fi TV, you know, um, effectively creepy, compelling, just good storytelling, and it holds up. 
I mean, here we are almost 30 years later. I was talking to my friend the other day, like I, I told him that I was going through the X-Files and he was like, oh, I bet it's, it probably hasn't aged very well. And I was like, no, it actually has aged, <laughs> remar it's aged remarkably well. There's shows from, you know, there's shows from 10 years ago that haven't aged that well, but, but this has aged remarkably well. It's, it's from the 90s, but it doesn't have, you know, you're like, oh, that's so 90s. You know, that's another thing too. It's, everything is very like, you know, they, they, the way they shoot it, everything is done in a very minimal way. It's very, you know, you have, you have Vancouver standing in for the U.S., but uh, it's fine. It's, uh, I know that'll eventually change. I know eventually the show moves to L.A. at some point, like the shooting locations. But, but as it is, you know, it's, it's working out very well. And I think that that's, yeah, exactly. It holds up because of that, because everything is so understated. And, you know, you look like, because, you know, for, for shits and giggles, I watch CSI. You know, I'm going through, like, CSI, which is from, you know, 20 years ago. And it is so 20 years ago. It is so, you know, the the flashiness of the camera work and the... Like, the overhead shots of Las Vegas. And, like, it's just so the fashion and everything. It's so, uh, 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 you know, and, and I mean, it's fun, but it's so right. much. It's It's so 2000, you know what I mean? And, but you look at this and you don't go like, oh, it's so 90s. You know what I mean? And, and I really appreciate that. It's just more classically composed. Yeah. Off topic, but uh, I was flipping through Netflix the other night and they had a list of uh, slow burn movies and TV shows. And um, there was one on there that my wife watched for a while called How to Get Away with Murder. And I don't know if you ever watched any of that, but it is... My dad's into that. <laughs> it, it's It's... CSI times 10 on that front. Everything's flashy. Everything's like pulsating. It's screaming at you the entire time. And I just got a kick out of the fact that they had it listed as a slow burn. And that's a show that in 10 years, it's definitely going to feel dated. There's no way it won't just in the style and the way, the, st the way it's shot and edited and just composed in general. And of course there's nothing wrong with something feeling very much of its time, but sure. it makes you evaluate it different at you know on down the road or something yeah. that that's just a little bit more classically done like the x-files yeah there's things that date it but never to the degree of something like that right no that's that's exactly uh, what i'm getting at it you're right there is nothing wrong with shows that are of their time you know this, you look at you know star trek the original series is very much a sci-fi series of the 60s and that's totally okay there's nothing wrong with that you know, you uh, you look at Miami Vice. That's very much a, you know, a cop show of the '80s, and that's okay. You know, but but I think, and it can exist as a time capsule. But I do appreciate how this doesn't do that, and it it says something about the way they were approaching these shows. Yeah. That they they definitely thought about that. I mean, I'm I'm. It's this isn't by accident. It wasn't like. Oh, we lucked out. No, they were clearly saying, look, this is how we're going to do it. This is going to be the look of the show because we want this to feel as timeless as possible. We want people to be able to look at this. And the fact is that, that I can see that their inspiration was coming from classic sci-fi TV. Because you look at something, to be perfectly honest, you look at something like the, like the Twilight Zone, like the classic Twilight Zone, right? And of course it's old, of course. Yeah. But there's a timelessness to the storytelling. Yeah, because they were also just like, you know, we're just telling these naturalistic 
stories, you know, and, and they, they weren't focused on any specific kind of kitsch element or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's all about character, you know, what, whether it's Twilight Zone or even like The Outer Limits, you know, th there's an aspect to it where it's not like, oh, God, that's so 60s. You know, there you, you look at that and you go like there's there's a certain aspect to this that is there's a timelessness because it's really focused on character. It's really focused on just good storytelling beyond yeah. anything else and beyond any like signifiers, any pop culture stuff. Uh, there's no like distracting music cues. There's none of that. You know, there's there's none of, um, you know, that, that that's what I find so refreshing. No distracting music cues, no flashiness, nothing. It's just very clean crisp storytelling and i really like that yeah that it's it's one of the best things about the show he was crawling up an air duct by himself without alerting security dana he passed the test his story checks out he's not the guy it doesn't mean that your profile's incorrect scully's right it is the guy what do you got Mulder? He lied on questions 11 and 13. His electrodermal and cardiographic response nearly go off the chart. Is number 11 the 100-year-old question? Well, let me tell you, I had a reaction to that stupid question. My interpretation of those reactions... I don't need you or that machine telling me if Toombs was alive in 33. He's the guy. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. And if you did, please subscribe to the podcast. Give us a like. Take a minute to write a positive review and go ahead and spread the word on social media. Podcast is available on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. Look for the Eric Santuan Network on Facebook or on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at EricsAntoineNet and check out my reviews on Letterboxd. There's quite a few and there will be more. You should also check out Daniel Baldwin's website, theschlocketeer.com, and follow him on Twitter at Daniel W. Baldwin. I'm Eric Santuan, and I'll be back in a few days, along with Daniel, to talk about Conduit, which was also the name of a now-forgotten Superman villain who made his debut in the Death of Clark Kent storyline, that was a good one, circa 1995, back when Superman had a mullet. But in any case, that has nothing to do with the episode, I'm just digressing now, so I hope you'll join us. And until then, let's all remember that the truth is out there. See you next time.